The Great Canadian Talk Show. There's only a couple of watts, but I brought the truth to everyone within three blocks of the west side of campus. No way! Yes way! And now, let's get right down to business with Marty Gold. Welcome to the Great Canadian Talk Show Podcast. This is episode 36 of season three. Boy, time flies when you're having fun. And I'm Marty Gold. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about the fundraising campaign over the course of the Christmas season. Uh, we've had some success so far. I'll get back to that uh, A push to try to get us uh, over the uh, stated goal of $1,800. And I'm going to be uh, appealing to all of you. But I'm going to pick up on that after December, after Boxing Day, after December 27th. Uh, but I do want to thank the, uh, the very generous individuals who've contacted me, who've met with me, who've sent along support uh, in... Uh, in furtherance of our goals, which is doing this kind of work, bringing you the kind of analysis, investigation, uh, and reporting that is simply not provided by the mainstream media in Winnipeg, uh, and uh, in in also you know bringing forward reports, for instance, um, the Sergeant Avenue bike lane. And let me tell you something: when we revealed that in our last podcast, that that was the next target for these geniuses, these urban visionaries that had never run an actual retail business uh, in their lives. Uh, Nobody wants to talk. Nobody's gotten back to us. Various interview requests. So there is a city councilor, not directly related to actually any of the bike lanes that we've talked about. Uh, a city councilor whose ward doesn't seem to be afflicted with a bike lane uh, has uh, uh, offered us uh, some time uh, that over the course of the weekend, and I'm going to try to accommodate that. I haven't heard of the uh, you know the specific um, uh, arrangement yet, but uh, I expect that we will have an interview with. Uh, a city councillor upcoming as well on Christmas Day. Uh, it's in the can, and I've got to put the fun- finishing touches on it. Our uh, special interview, uh, fourth in our series, with Andrew Marquez of Gem Equities. He's going to talk more about uh, the court case with the city, the expropriation hearing, and also his perspectives on the federal uh, arm twisting of municipalities, uh, a developer's point of view about... Uh, the kinds of things that are are getting in the way of uh, of the approval of new housing developments across this country and in this city in particular, uh, and Marcus with some very interesting comments that I know is going to make your Christmas day. I guarantee it. <clears throat> Crime Court's public safety update in this episode brought to you by Jamrock Security, and they're going to be continuing to. Uh, sponsor these segments into the new year, and for that, I very much thank them. I'm going to start off this time with uh, a look at the you know, public safety angle. Last time, you'll recall, uh, we started uh, with crime and courts and then landed on public safety. This one's going to come around to public safety, and something that could have turned into a problem and uh, did not because of the way that it was handled. <clears throat> On Thursday, a plan had been hatched for a picket, an information, I think it was called an information picket, outside of the uh, Chapters store in what's called Kennison Common, out uh, by Ikea. Best way to explain to people that aren't familiar with each and every intersection and which businesses are clustered where out there. I'm barely, barely gotten familiar with it myself. Um, but that company, Indigo, has been uh, targeted 
by uh, anti-Semitic activists attacking Heather Reisman, the owner of that company, a respected leader in the Jewish community She's from Toronto for many decades. Uh, and the issue is that she provides uh, uh, scholarships to individuals who come from, let's just say North America, they, I assume it's North America, I assume it's Canada actually, but scholarships for people that join the uh, uh, IDF that go to Israel after they turn 18 or 19 or whatever, they get out of high school, for instance, they go, they uh, join the Israeli Defense Forces and she provides scholarships after their term of duty is up. And somehow this is this promotes genocide and apartheid and every other stupid idea that Jew haters out there like to sling around at the notion that soldiers who serve in the IDF are somehow criminals. And the support of it, when you criticize somebody for the support of it, it's not anti-Semitic. When you say boycott chapters because they provide scholarships to people after they get out of the army, just a bunch of screwballs. But they've caused damage. In Toronto in particular, that store was targeted. Uh, red uh, red paint splattered on it. Uh, I think that there was uh, posters glued up on it as well, right? Uh, the usual kind of, of disgusting antisocial behavior, harassing a Jewish business person. And this has gone on other locations, uh, certainly in Toronto. Not so much we've seen in Winnipeg. This would have been, I think, the first example of it in Winnipeg. Of this uh, concept of, a, of an info picket for Palestine to disrupt the indigo at Keniston Common. This put forward by, among other groups, Labor for Palestine Winnipeg. So again, the far-left Marxists... And we know how many unions have been taken over by rabid Jew haters, particularly national unions. And so they were going to go down on Thursday to that location, meeting spot, parking lot outside the store. And their intention was clear. Because that wasn't the protest spot, that was the meeting spot. They wanted to go inside the store, but not so fast. The Israeli Canadian Council organized a counter-protest. And although the police have tried to convince the uh, individual sides to not, you know, give, give one side their say one day and you take yours the next, the Israelis in this case, because uh, the Jewish Federation is uh, still uh, not having developed the testicular fortitude necessary to face these kinds of threats to Jewish safety and to public safety, but the Israeli-Canadian Council... Uh, has pretty big testicles organizing a counter-protest pointing out that this info picket has the aim of disrupting regular operations at the, at the store. We won't let them. Former city councillor, former member of the legislature, former cabinet minister, former candidate for mayor and prospective candidate for leader of the Conservative Party in Manitoba, Kevin Klein may have been the only politician to issue a statement about this situation, putting out a statement uh, that a pro-Palestinian anti-Jewish organization is calling for a demonstration in front of the Jewish-owned chapter's indigo store, Kennison Commons, and provided the notice, uh, the poster, 
that had been circulated to recruit people. Klein saying, let me be clear, the deliberate targeting of a business by any group, regardless of their social, political, or cultural differences, is not acceptable. This targeted harassment must stop. Winnipeg Police Service needs to step up their enforcement activity to keep the peace and prevent further escalation of this dangerous behavior. Klein, clearly knowing what's going on in uh, Toronto and in other places with regards to the targeting of the bookstore, but generally the targeting of Jewish businesses. The right to moral assembly, he tweeted, crosses a moral and legal boundary when it deliberately targets a business because of the race of its owner. I, I think he might have meant religion. Hate has no place here. Those, these targetings must end immediately. And of course, in the, on Twitter, you know, you always have wiseacres uh, piping in, some self-hating, I can't even describe how far left this, this nut bar is, some self-hating Jew. Indigo funds genocide has nothing to do with the owner's religion. In other words, two sentences, two lies. Jerk. And Klein was right in that the police needed to ensure that their presence was felt, and they did, according to a listener of this program. Staff has confirmed that there was eight police cars, two cops in the vestibule, 12 uniformed cops, an unknown number of undercover cops. The protesters played music and chanted and stayed outside. What was going on inside? According to a press release to the members of the Jewish community by the Israeli-Canadian Council, successful outcome. Protest moved outside Indigo. Our concerns were heard by both store management and the Winnipeg police, resulting in the protest being moved outside the store. Uh, a heartfelt thank you to everyone who came out to support Indigo. Your presence made a significant impact turning the situation into a positive and inclusive atmosphere. The store was filled with members of our community, creating an uplifting and supportive environment. Thank you for maintaining your solidarity and a commitment to maintaining a respectful space for all. Signed, the Israeli-Canadian Council. A, a, a Cole's note uh, added online. Sales at the store were brisk, and many of those who came to show support purchased books and gifts for the holiday season. It's not the end of the protests and protest marches. I'm recording this uh, segment in particular uh, late on Friday night, but on Saturday, uh, the Canadian Palestinian Association of Manitoba um, has announced uh, that they they were planning a protest march and uh, at Polo Park Mall. The mall management found out, the police found out, and they were told to know in certain terms Nobody's coming on the property and nobody's protesting inside the mall. Location change. After discussions with many community members, meaning cops, we've decided it would be best to have the rally outside the mall instead of inside. And then they go on with the oppression, colonization, humanity, leaving out using hospitals as Hamas headquarters and how many doctors and nurses were in Hamas and the fact there's not a single United Nations uh, uh, refugee uh, organization uh, school or, or, or facility that has has not had weapons in it in the uh, in the uh, war in Gaza has been uncovered by the IDF repeating from the river to the sea Palestine will be free Polo Park Shopping Center December 23rd 1 p.m. please meet by Portage Avenue. And so, again, now we've seen these kinds of de deliberate disruptions of Christmas 
There will be no Christmas. This is how the posters work in bigger cities where they, they have this force of numbers that's just incomprehensible. In Toronto, Montreal, places like that where the, where the premiers have, again, no testicles and, and where the, uh, uh, the police are incapable of developing a plan to protect the public, to protect public order. Here in Winnipeg, it looks like there's two occasions in a row where the Winnipeg police have put their feet down, foots down, and forced a change of plans on these anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, pro-Hamas protest marchers. And good on the cops, good on Kevin Klein for bringing it up, good on the uh, Israeli-Canadian Council for doing the work that the Jewish Federation won't. And we'll continue to keep an eye on that and all issues relating to the rise of anti-Semitism. Uh, you can find those uh, on actionline.ca on our website. And when you go to the far right uh, on the site, uh, you'll see a, uh, a tab that says Watchdog Blog. And in, under there, there's a tab called Hate Crimes. And that's right now where we're putting all the stories relating to these situations, uh, in particular in Winnipeg, but there's also editorials that I've uh, picked up uh, and uh, and uh, published uh columns, our editorials written by experts in this field. I'm hoping to run something for my friend uh, Moisha Phillips, who's from Philadelphia uh, in the near future. Uh, Dr. Raphael Medoff has provided columns. Uh, he's frequently uh, published in, I think it's uh, Los, uh, I think it's uh, Jewish Journal. Uh, and uh, so you can find uh, information and uh, uh, articles that are relevant not only to the bigger picture of the rise of anti-Semitism and Jew hate uh, under the guise of anti-Zionism, uh, but uh, also the uh, you know what's going on in the local scene. I am the only person covering this, and whereas there's smart Alex out there in the Winnipeg media, say, "Oh no, you don't need specialized knowledge to understand what's going on with anti-Semitism," and and well, yes, you do. You have to know what the signs are. You have to know what the language means. You have to know what the tactics are. You have to know when something is targeting Jews or targeting Jewish businesses, and uh, you have to show that you care. Winnipeg Newsroom's absolutely incapable of doing it. And we've seen it nationally with the kind of reporting, and oh, it's a mistake in the script by, C by, uh, by CBC after the mistake in the script by CTV that they still haven't apologized for from a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to continue to keep an eye on that, and just explain when you support this podcast when you when you when you make sure that we have the resources the bills are paid i continue to provide the coverage cbc cjob the free press the winnipeg sun none of them provide or are willing to provide to give you the information you need to understand who's out there trying to overthrow uh, Western democracy, who's out there trying to undermine this Jewish safety, and who's uh, also undermining the safety of Christian communities, might I add, as we've seen in evidence across the states, the U.S., with these kinds of similar marches. I am standing here, ready to be a sentry, ready to be your watchdog. That's in part when you support this program, whether it's through PayPal, through Interact Donations, or... Uh, other means when you directly contact me, martygoldlivegmail.com at gmail.com. Uh, that's the kind of work that we provide here through actionline.ca and on the Great Canadian Talk Show podcast. I'm going to have a roundup of the two most recent murders, some information about the people accused in the, in the murders, and also the return of blight to the St. Boniface Hospital area. Imagine 
just wait till you hear what's going on and the city wants to build a bike path to lead people, a bike lane, to lead people right to that kind of public disorder. It's a disgrace. And Matt Allard, the city councilor, he's on vacation till January 3rd. We're going to give him a few things to have to answer for, along with covering, again, these two most recent murders here in the city right after this break. The Great Canadian Talk Show is brought to you by The Hive Hair Company. From classic to funky, the styles of your life are at The Hive in the heart of the Osborne Village at 175 Osborne. Call 452-4483 or online thehivehaircompany.com. Do you have a comment, story tip, or want to advertise or support The Great Canadian Talk Show podcast? Email tgcts1 at gmail.com. Join the Facebook group or follow us on Twitter at TGCTS. You have the power. The Crime Courts and Public Safety Update is sponsored by Jamrock Security. For your home, your family, your business, your employees, and for your community, Jamrock provides affordable protection solutions. Call 204-880-1564 or go online, jamrocksecurity.ca. Do security. Do it smart. Jamrock Security. Uh, before I get into what is the intended direction of part two, we're going to be in three parts here with the crime and courts part of this episode of episode 36. But uh, there are a couple of other points that uh, in the course of this break between part one and part two, I've, I got an email. And so there's a few details that relate to what I was talking about. The uh, ongoing marches in Winnipeg, uh, what, uh, not so much what happened at Indigo uh, uh, in terms of the note I got, but in terms of uh, what is uh, planned to transpire on uh, on Saturday. And so I just need to go back to that for one second just to make sure that I'm clear on a couple of points. Uh, the uh, I think this is a Winnipeg Sun report uh, said that the uh, Jewish Federation... I guess they had some communication from the Federation, uh, which noted similar protests at malls in other parts of the country, as I recounted. Quote, have unfortunately led to instances of inciting hatred against Jews. The Federation took its concerns over the original location uh, of the Polo Park uh, protest to Cadillac Fairview, the uh, operators of the mall. Now, um, it then quotes the CEO saying that the Federation was pleased the protest be moved. I want to be clear on this. It's when people like retired lawyer Bill Narvey sends an, uh, a letter, an email, to all the major Jewish organizations and directly to the leadership, not just to the info at, along with other residents of Winnipeg, generally from the Israeli-Canadian Council, from that part of the, of the Jewish community. There's 4,000 Israelis here. And when they say, did you know this was going on? What are you going to do about it? And Bill Narvey never gets an answer, which is pretty damn rude, by the way. This is how the Jewish community leadership operates. They look down their nose at people that dare to push them to do better. And so while I don't doubt that the Federation sent something to Cadillac Fairview, they wouldn't have even known about this if it wasn't for the people that actually do the work of monitoring social media to keep an eye on the safety and security of the Jewish community as well as the general community in Winnipeg. Federation's got zero relationship with the Winnipeg police 
when it comes to these matters. I assure you. Now, for the uh, side of the protesters, uh, the Palestinian Association Manitoba, we have decided it would be best to have the rally outside the mall instead of inside. <laughs> yeah, I've been moved, according to the newspaper, to the southwest uh, corner of the mall parking lot, uh, which would be the St. James and Portage side of things. And uh, thereby the mall and the police, by putting their foot down, avoiding uh, the inevitable build to Kristallnacht here in Winnipeg, guaranteed. And Cadillac Fairview uh, committed to ensuring a safe and secure environment for shoppers, tenants, and employees. And so what we have, the reason why this is important is the organizers uh, backed off from a protest in the middle of the mall on basically the bus- I'm sure it's the busiest day, right? Basically, Saturday is Christmas Eve for all intents and purposes. Uh, busiest shopping day of the year. And something that nobody mentioned, there is at least one store owned by a Jewish family in that mall. And if anybody thinks that there weren't going to be negative repercussions you'd be uh, from a march inside the mall, you'd be naive. Just ask the business owners in Toronto and the mall, uh, the uh, business owners in the malls in Toronto, Yorkdale, etc. just how that's worked out for them. In Winnipeg, again, as I record this, is before the plan for the march uh, uh, on Saturday. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. But I just wanted to clarify, the Federation said they did something. The uh, Palestinian Association Association. Uh, tries to blow off the switch. Oh, we decided it'd be best to have it outside the mall instead of inside. Yeah, right. Now on with the second part of this uh, crime, courts, and public safety update. The murder on Talbot. Ivan Rubanek was an engineer who came to Canada with his family fleeing the war in Ukraine. I set aside whether any plan had been made for him to be able to practice as an engineer and contribute to our society in that way, but he found work in a factory. And walking to work in the morning at 8 a.m., he was stabbed at the corner of Talbot and Watt. And a 19-year-old is charged. And the Winnipeg Free Press headline, which I guess quotes, uh, you know, uh, somebody... Uh, it might have quoted, actually, the police might have quoted uh, Jason McAlation. No rhyme or reason. Ukrainian refugees slain in Elmwood random attack. Oh, no, there's a reason. And there's some obvious reasons. And this is a failure. When you say the system, it's a failure of individuals on government payrolls or government subsidized payrolls that led to this peaceful 46-year-old Ukrainian being slaughtered during morning rush hour. The accused is a fellow named Ethan Richard Gladu. He comes from an interesting family background in that he has a grandfather, had a grandfather who's deceased, uh, with a lot, it looked like a lot of, of, of siblings, there's a uh, we're talking like 10, uh, one branch of the family is 10, 11 kids. So it's a very different uh, dynamic. The family, I think, uh, the grandfather originally from Northwestern Ontario and worked, if I am if I have the details right, as a firefighter. What happened with this 
uh, with this grandson uh, and going off the rails, there's a few parts to it. But the most important part is he should never have been allowed out in public. A year ago, will the media tell to you tell you this in these terms? It was only one year ago that Gladue was convicted of possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose. Now, some of us aren't lawyers. Most of us aren't. What does that mean? Let's just assume he was walking around with a machete. Since we don't live in the forests, uh, or the you know, in the in, in the Everglades, or or you know, in the in swamp somewhere in the Philippines, it's a good guess that somebody carrying a machete is up to no good. I.e., a weapon for a dangerous purpose, and there was a court order for him not to possess weapons, and he was charged with failing to comply. Now, a year ago, this nineteen-year-old was only eighteen, unless his birthday falls between December twentieth right, the murder, and the end of the year, he's about to turn 21, uh, or uh, 20, rather. So he's 19, which means a year ago he was 18. You follow the logic? So if there was a previous court order requiring not to possess weapons, uh, I'm not clear if that was a condition on the charge that he was convicted of, because I would think that would be a... uh, It just... I wonder if this prohibition on carrying a weapon is from his juvenile days. That's my point. And it might be. I haven't been able to get clarification. This fellow, carrying a possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose, failing to comply with the court order, got 12 months of supervised probation. Uh, that supervision uh, expire yet? Didn't do much good. At the time of the slaying, as the media puts it. In other words, when Ivan walked into this Gladue fellow, Gladue was on bail facing assault and weapons charges for two separate incidents in April and September. So let's focus on this. A year ago, he's convicted of possession of a dangerous weapon for a bad purpose, okay? Then he's alleged to commit assault and be in possession of weapons, if not use the weapons, in April and then September. Now you'd think that somebody like this wouldn't be allowed to circulate in public. But when the ruling class isn't threatened by these kinds of characters, that isn't how public safety works. He had bail conditions. He was out on bail. Now again, look at the pattern. I don't know when the originating uh, uh, incident was. The result of the conviction last December. Convicted December, incident in April, incident in September, all involving weapons. The last two were assaults. This is, again, what we've talked about in the other podcast. You, you see this pattern? With no action taken to protect the public. Bail conditions. A nightly curfew. This murder happened at 8 a.m. Not possess any weapons. Well, he already laughed at that one before. He continued to laugh at it until we had a dead refugee on our streets. Now, it's been, was noted, I think this was the free press, that Gladue's brother was fatally stabbed on McPhillips near the underpass in September 2018. In that case, back when this Gladue fellow 
was 14, a 13-year-old, for reasons that the court could not figure out, stabbed his brother, who was then 17, on McPhillips. It seems to me the stabbing was near the casino. Might have been near the casino or... uh, 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 like on that side of the underpass, on the north end side of the underpass, and uh, the brother expired on Logan, was found on Logan and McPhillips. The kid in that case at first pleaded not guilty, I think, uh, and was sentenced by Judge Julie Fredrickson. So you've got Gladue, whose brother is murdered with, uh, who identified his killer, so he knew the killer, the 13-year-old, two police officers, as he was drawing his last breath. That evidence allowed into court as a dying declaration, resulting in the conviction of, of a kid who was 13, who by the time he was convicted was 15. So there was th- that trauma in Gladue's life. Let's set aside whether he received any proper counseling or help for that. And another question that was raised uh, to me was, well, did, did the 14-year-old at the time, Gladue, actually know the 13-year-old? And it's possible. In any event, this guy was going off the rails. And nobody took concrete steps to stop it. We see what the nightly curfew, how useful the nightly curfew was for the the Ukrainian refugee and his family. He worked at Westward Industries and one of his co-workers told the media, we always told him to be careful, especially on Talbot. Especially on Talbot. You know, some of us have been known to gas up or grab a piece of chicken or something at that 7-Eleven at Talbot and Watt. And people who work in the neighborhood consider Talbot so dangerous that a virile 46-year-old man was warned to watch out. Nobody, uh, you know, Elmwood's kind of fallen off the radar a bit. I think I'm going to have to put it back on the crime radar. A vigil being held on Saturday uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Elmwood Community Resource Center uh, with an offer of uh, uh, elders and community leaders. I I don't know. They mean Ukrainian elders? Don't quite get that. Um, he leaves a wife and two teenagers. And they just came here uh, late in 2022, around the time that Gladue was being sentenced in the first place. the deceased and electrical engineer, comments from the community. This was two blocks from my daughter's school. I went past the scene on my way to the doctor. Seriously disappointed in the city and what appears to be a lack of action to start changing the state of the city. Brian Bowman's legacy, along with the legacy of the courts. Another comment These are all from women, by the way. Basically, someone who didn't know him took his life for no reason, left a war-torn city to come to our piece of crap city and then took his life. So sad, I'm disgusted by my city more and more. 
Another broader observation by another woman, a candidate is descending into a chaotic, violent, and lawless society where criminals are shielded from being held accountable while innocent people's lives are turned into a daily struggle to survive the onslaught of barbaric behavior that is becoming prominent in so many communities. Think about that for a minute and think about whether you can possibly disagree with that conclusion. Hard to argue, isn't it? And again, you can go into our archive and look up all the different stories about uh, about uh, crime, uh, about how the courts are handling these matters, and you'll see time and again the uh, you know recidivism and the 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 lack of dealing with these things as they're brewing, which results in the end in more violence, more lawlessness, and in fatalities. This has given Winnipeg, and we hearken back to the candidate stabbing of the recent Ukrainian arrival uh, at the Forks. Another incident that put Winnipeg on the map. Thank you, Brian Bowman. Uh, I think we're going to end up doing an episode about Brian Bowman in the future. We've seen two teens in six months murdered on Graham. We've seen uh, teenager teenagers involved in both those murders on Graham. The one of them last week, and then this week another teenager. What is going on when? And all of these teenagers have prior contact with the so-called system. And you can go check out the archive, uh, December 11th, the alt-reality Winnipeg's criminal class. Second teen in six months murdered on Graham on December 18th. Even back on December 3rd, the mayhem that ER nurses are facing inside emergency rooms. And not all of that is being committed uh, by, uh, you know, um, how do I put this? Uh, People of all ages are are causing that mayhem in emergency rooms. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Winnipeg, remember that survey in November? Number three most livable city. There's some corpses that have been littered around town that if they could draw a breath would beg to differ. Going to be looking at uh, the other uh, murder on Graham, a couple of other things right after this break. Actionline.ca, let's get right down to business. Our launch event exclusive interview with Andrew Marquez of Gem Equities. It looked like we were off to a good start. And then from there on, it was just jumping through hoops. The man who beat the city of Winnipeg in court was awarded $5 million and counting. They try to interfere with his development. And then we just realized this was essentially a game. Here, Andrew Marquez tell his story. This planner had a meeting with Councillor Orlico, and Councillor Orlico said, slow down the plan, basically stop it. On actionline.ca. It tells you how truly tragic, rotten, awful, inexcusable the murder of Ivan Rubenik on Talbot and Watt was that it got people to stop talking about the murder of that 14-year-old in front of the Cargill building on Graham near Fort last week. 
And there's a lot of talk about both the victim in that case and the 17-year-old who is accused of having murdered her. Now, CBC's run a story, and I, I want to acknowledge that Damon Johnson, I've spoken with him, I like Damon, I've known Damon for, holy jeez, it's like 40 years. He's president of the Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg. And Damon had some comments about the girl, about the victim. Uh, characterized, n- not his words, but by the media, as that she fell through the cracks of a system that's supposed to help her. That's how they are portraying the story. She wasn't able to get the specialized care she needed to set the stage for her to change her life for the better, said Damon Johnson. Uh, I think what's important, he said, is that we hopefully that we hopefully will learn more about this. Um, I understand what Damon meant. I like Damon, as I said, a great deal, but I think Damon's wrong. What's important is that the people who are responsible for this child's death are held accountable. That's what's important. And I don't only mean the knife or machete-wielding alleged perp. The 17-year-old boy pulled out a knife the day before. That was on the Friday. On the Thursday, that girl had been in court where a social worker told the court that they couldn't get the funding program assigned to her, assigned to a funding program, I guess a better way of putting it, for specialized uh, housing placement. This kid ran away from foster homes repeatedly and was on the lam, as we learned from media reports, was actually on the lam for three weeks. This was left out of the first batch. And I, I don't want to say left out. It could be that none of the reporters had, had found this out or dug it up yet. Uh, uh, so I, I don't want to, in this case, I don't want to say it was deliberate. But this was, for the, from the, the point of view of that girl, uh, much more disturbing. Because she had evidently been missing running away from a foster placement for three weeks and was found in the homeless camp at the Osborne Bridge in the Fort Rouge side. So the court actually ordered her to stay away from there. Now, this opens up a whole other bunch of questions about whether these two knew each other at all and whether there's any, and there were some other girls with, with them when the boy stabbed the victim. What exactly was going on and did any of it have anything to do with this homeless camp? Or another homeless camp, for that matter. But here's a girl who's come from up north. Obviously, the family's got trouble. She has is believed to have uh, developmental uh, disabilities. The social workers 
sought Jordan's principal for assistance for what the province won't cover, what her needs are, but it's very backlogged. They tried to change her status to an off-reserve uh, uh, federally funded child to open doors for her. Couldn't happen. And the judge, appointed the same day, the judge that I mentioned in the uh, the uh, other case where, Gla- where uh, Gladue's brother had been stabbed, the judge that convicted the perp in that, who did the stabbing when he was 13, that was Julie Fredrickson. The judge in this case, dealing with this girl, was appointed the same day as Julie Fredrickson. Coincidence, coincidence. And this is Judge Kusham Sharma, who talked very nicely to the girl in court, but the kid said, I don't like talking to people, and was, was you know, pretty urgent about, you know, where am I going to be? And the idea was, if they couldn't find her a a suitable placement by 4 p.m., she was going to be put in emergency placement. Now let's go back and piece this together. The kid's in court. She's run away for three weeks. She bit her social worker on the arm. She's a notorious runaway. She's got a developmental disability. She isn't comfortable talking with people, so she's got some social um, issues, okay? You know what I haven't figured out from any of the media stories? Where did she go at 4 o'clock that day or that evening on the Thursday? to end up being on Fort and Graham at 1 p.m., losing her life on Friday. You remember uh, the previous regime of the NDP government when, you know, Kerry Irvin Ross was the minister and they'd, like, be dumping kids in hotels? It makes you wonder if this kid would have been safer in a damn hotel. Where did she go? Who was responsible for her? Did she, like, just, like, you know, fight? was given a, a placement in a home, a foster home somewhere, had a bed, right? And then just picked up and left? Nobody's answered that. Why was she put in an environment where she'd be able to leave when the last time she screwed off for three weeks to a homeless camp? Every time you hear these leftists go, oh, think about the children. And then when they get children in their hands, they think about their paychecks and not the children. Court was told if the social worker was unable to find somewhere for the teen by 4 p.m. that day, she'd be given an emergency placement. The girl asked her social worker, do you think you could find a placement, the placement as soon as possible, doing my best? The girl struggled with, here's again for the media reports, on a wait list for a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder assessment. How had she not had that, like, the minute she came into contact with social workers? What? Frequently went, went, went missing from a previous foster home should be provided emergency placement if they couldn't find a foster home by 4 p.m. that day. Unbelievable. But there are adults that had contact with this kid. Oh, what does Nahani Fontaine say? The girl's death is heartbreaking. I'm committed to making sure youth across our province are cared for. Noted by the, I believe, the Free Press, Fontaine did not provide any specific examples of how the government will reduce risk for at-risk children. What would Nahani Fontaine in opposition have said if under a conservative government, a child was in custody at four o'clock and was butchered on the street by one o'clock the next day? She'd probably be demanding her own resignation. Now, a comment from a listener about this case. I'm going to provide their 
perspective, uh, not all of which I agree with, but they make some good points. This press is trying to make the system the villain of the story. This is how I read it. The girl is a chronic runaway. She's likely at the homeless camp when the outreach worker found her, which, which I think is probably true. She tried to run and he held her, but she bit him. The only way to control her whereabouts was to have her arrested. She showed up in court and does the song and dance about wanting a place to stay, which, you know, I, I, I think that's natural enough. The kid wants a roof over her head. And it's not from Winnipeg. It's not like she can just go back to her parents' house or something. She does a song and dance, according to this listener, about wanting a place to stay and obeying court orders, anything to get out of custody. So they can't find special housing for her, so what? They put her up in a hotel? Well, no, they supposedly stopped doing that, right? The next morning, she splits, hooks up with some teens downtown who kill her in broad daylight as the bus stop filled with, was filled with people. The system worked. She was a girl at risk. The system took her in and tried to keep her off the street and safe. And this is the perspective of a listener. But she conned her way out of jail. No bail, which I think is pretty obvious. And did what she always did, ran away. How many times have you read stories about fathers and mothers begging the courts to keep their drug-addicted children in custody, only to be told that's not how it works? The law says you can't hold someone against their will if he hasn't committed a crime. This is just a variation of that. We can't spend millions on broken teens who cannot be saved. The system works if the children want help. If not, Darwinism takes does its job. Now, I respect that my listeners have a variety of opinions. I don't see this as Darwinism because I don't think this kid was out taking excessive risks except for the risk that a that a an intellectually challenged 13 or 14 year old uh, is is taking by being in downtown Winnipeg even in broad daylight nowadays and whereas it's true that children the system works if children want help I disagree with that I disagree with that insofar as um, she did want help wasn't adjusting able to adjust to the help that was being given um, and Clearly, the system didn't work because wherever they put her that night on the Thursday night, nothing was put in place. Like, again, why is she, what, what is going on there? And this idea of not being able to hold children in custody, uh, I, I believe there's an override for their own protection. And I don't know, the average parent would go, 13-year-old, 14-year-old girl runs off and spends three weeks in a homeless camp. Hmm, she needs to be protected from herself. And somehow the system didn't work. And somehow, and I still don't understand this, Jordan's principle didn't work. All the hard work that Dr. John Gerard did on that case. You know, where governments argue over jurisdiction, nobody wants to foot the bill and you end up with a dead kid and think Jordan's principle was over a medical situation, medical condition. How did this not work? And who's going to be held responsible? And why did the judge let her go? Why did the judge agree to let her go? That is what makes, to me, no sense. Meanwhile, the 17-year-old who was charged... Wait a second. I think I just noticed. Do I have this right that it's the same judge that let her go? The same judge 
I just realized this. The same judge that released this girl heard the case of this 17-year-old when he was arraigned for murdering her. Kusham Sharma. Unbelievable. Provincial Court Judge Kusham Sharma told the 17-year-old, I know you're feeling very sad right now seeing mom, mom in the courtroom. Boy, it's a judge who's really nice to these kids, eh? Uh, so this boy ends up in court. There was a no contact order on seven witnesses. His uh, defense attorney arguing, well, he only knows two of them and one's his girlfriend. And can't he pretty please talk with his girlfriend or have her have supervised visits at the youth center and blah, blah, blah. But the crown saying, not so fast. Uh, this case still has to work its way through the process. Uh, if the incident is discussed at all, said the Crown Attorney, the evidence is tainted. Uh, and uh, Sharma, Judge Sharma, agreed in the interest of justice, telling the 17-year-old it's important you cooperate with that doctor, the kid's getting an assessment. The judge refused to let the accused hug his mother and could be heard sobbing in a locked room. Hmm. Not much background on, uh, and no background at all on the family yet, and probably because there's a publication ban of some sort. Uh, judge Sharma, who knew both the... I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. I just realized it literally as I'm recording this podcast. Sharma on the Thursday releases the girl from custody... And the following Wednesday, six days later, is holding a hearing with her accused killer. Sharma was executive director of the Innovation and Restorative Justice Branch of Manitoba Justice. According to her background, she's never actually practiced law. She went straight from university to working as a crown. I wonder a little bit about lawyers who never practice law, who then become judges. And this has created a class of judges uh, who, like Brian Bowman, uh, have their heads in a rarefied air, very far detached from the reality that senior citizens, for instance, standing at bus stops on the August long weekend and then get punched in the nose. Or Ukrainian refugees going to the Forks or walking to work at Talbot and Watt. I wonder if these, how well these judges relate to the what, what used to be called the proletariat. I don't think it's right for the adults who are responsible for the care of the, seven, of the 14-year-old girl to just sort of point fingers in a like a like a you know a circular firing squad and somehow there's levels of government that didn't step to the plate this child should not have died it remains to be seen if the 17 year old should have even been out on the street but this child should not have perished
And it remains to be seen, as I said, if, in my opinion, if Judge Sharma engaged in a grave miscalculation, like, why not just, like, start holding some of these, maybe not the social worker, but some of these uh, people responsible for funding, why not just start holding them in contempt? Like, people have resources, officials have resources, and they aren't uh, allowing runaways to have access to the funding, you know, like to put, to, to like keep these kids safe. How are they not in contempt? How are they not responsible? Just unbelievable. And, and, and uh, well, obviously, you know, this is a, an important issue to, uh, to us, an important issue to our listeners. We're going to stay on it. Now, another thing that's an important issue uh, when it comes to crime courts and public safety, having just discussed certainly crime and courts, lo and behold, you can take the bus shack away from the bus stop, but you can't take the derelict bums away from the area. In, when you're coming down Goulet, before you get to McDonald's, there's a little lane that but juts out onto Goulet. It's called Goulet Place. And that has now become, by the way, the main egress road coming out of the St. Bonifs emergency room during the reconstruction. You have to come out this side. It's a side lane that connects the back of the, do, of the uh, Dominion Shopping Center, the, the, that strip mall. Uh, it's like a little escape hatch. And now for the hospital, it's the escape hatch, too. I think it always was, really, uh, but not really commonly used. Now, just before you get to Goulet Place uh, is, uh, was a bus shack that was perpetually being wrecked, so it was taken away. Huge pile of garbage reported by a listener between the St. Boniface Clinic, which is the corner of Taché, and the McDonald's behind the sign, meaning basically on the parking lot, drinking beer, eating pizza, we need, said this listener, to stop the donations and the coddling to the homeless that are endangering St. Boniface. And again, we've talked before about the danger to the St. Boniface nurses, the nurses at the emergency room, to all the healthcare workers in the area. Took away the bus shack, and the problem persists. Mattelard's not going to deal with it because he's off on vacation till January 3rd. But he is a proponent of building a bike lane that will lead people right past this kind of disorder. More people to be panhandled, more people to be harassed, more people to have their bikes stolen. That's Madelard's idea of the future of St. Boniface. It's not that of our listener, not that of many listeners, and not that of myself. The uh, you can you want to find out more about what's going on in St. Boniface and bike lanes. Again, that podcast, which has certainly got you know got a lot of um, positive feedback. Our roundup of what's going on, bike lane plans facing a fight in Winnipeg's West End, where we revealed that the city, uh, uh, as told to us by Russ White, you can listen to the episode, that one, the, De- the December 19th episode, um, where the city is planning bike lanes for Sargent Avenue, and absolutely nobody thinks, and I mean nobody, thinks it's a good idea. Maybe Brent Bellamy will, the Free Press's uh, you know, favorite know-nothing columnist, which is saying something considering their lineup of know-nothing columnists. 
But we reviewed what's going on. Wolseley, Osborne Village, worse than I thought the more I drive down Stradbrook and River. Not so much River, but that Stradbrook, really not good. Uh, the Moving on Marion plan, people have commented about the pictures I took about the reconstruction, the, com- the complete devastation of the Uville uh, curve that leads into Goulet towards downtown, the uneven laneways, the tar. Somebody said it looks like 1989 Soviet Russia. And I encourage you to look at that story. And, and we did tell we did tell how Transcona Biz fought back. And so there is a way to do it. But these plans continually take advantage of neighborhoods where the bike lobby is organized, where the biz directors are all in, where they hide information, hide uh, uh, the negative effects of these projects from their own members that are signing their paychecks. In the case of St. Boniface near the hospital, there's no residence association. The city continually takes advantage of neighborhoods that don't have organization, takes advantage of controlling the flow of information. And unlike what the auditor said in uh, 2012, you have to talk about the bad side of bike lanes and these kinds of AT uh, active transportation infrastructures, not only the good side. Travel times will be delayed by X. There will be no more right turns allowed at the certain intersections, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is never discussed. It's an, not just uneven playing field. It's outright deception to favor a very small influential lobby that is at its core against our way of life, against capitalism, and from which many politicians run in fear of these people. I don't. They're selfish. They're oftentimes rude. They don't care about neighborhood businesses. We do. And so you can check out that and all our other bike lane stories. Uh, only in the, and this goes back to the Winnipeg media. Nobody's reported the Provence put up a, a fight. Nobody's reported the Transcona uh, fought and ensured there'd be no parking loss. Nobody's talked about the deception in St. Boniface, and that the city has to this day never told the neighborhood, we're going to take away 99 parking spots. That's the value of alternative media. Go to the donate page and support our platform, supportactionline.ca, support the Great Canadian Talk Show podcast, and we will continue to support you going into the new year. That wraps up episode 30, which one is this, 36? And, And we'll be back Christmas Day, special interview, You're going to hear more from Andrew Marquez of Gem Equities. You don't want to miss that episode. Until then, enjoy your holiday weekend. Or week, I suppose. You have the power. Thanks for listening to The Great Canadian Talk Show. If you want to email Marty, send it to tgcts1 at gmail.com. Or follow him on Twitter at tgcts. I'm